Well, beloved, we have a problem. And that problem is what one writer calls blame transference syndrome. As the name suggests, this syndrome is all about how we have a problem with accepting blame, with accepting guilt. And that's because we don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be guilty. We don't like the shame of sin. Further yet, we often think we are much more righteous than we actually are. And so instead of accepting the blame or the guilt of our actions and our thoughts, we transfer that blame. We shift it to the circumstances or we shift it to people. We shift it to anything we can so we don't have to face our own failure. It's like we play dodgeball with blame. We dodge every accusation of blame, whether it comes from those around us or whether those accusations come from our own hearts. We don't want to get hit with it. And we are so good at this that oftentimes we aren't even aware that we are doing it. So natural, so subtle, so smoothly do we transfer blame that we often do it without thinking. In fact, so subtle might it be that we honestly believe sometimes that that we are innocent. We honestly believe that we aren't to blame. Because we are so very good at this, James takes the time to uncover this syndrome in our hearts this morning. What is happening here in this first chapter of James is that we are shifting our focus from external trials to internal trials. We are shifting from trials that happen to us to the temptations we struggle with while we are in them. In other words, we're looking at how we respond to the trials and circumstances of our lives. And what James is going to show us is that sometimes we don't respond very well. Sometimes we respond sinfully to the trials of our lives, and in these sinful responses, and it is these sinful responses that we often believe are are justified, that we believe are appropriate even sometimes. Instead of acknowledging, acknowledging them as sinful, we justify them. Or we blame the circumstances that we're in for our poor behavior, thereby shifting the blame off of ourselves, away from ourselves. It's their fault, we argue. They made me act this way. Sometimes, more often than I think we realize, beloved, we even blame God. It's his fault. It is these internal struggles, these temptations that James addresses in our passage this morning. We're going to see that he's going to tell us three things here. First, he's going to lay down the motivation for resisting temptation, Second, he is going to reveal the heart of temptation. And finally, he is going to point us to the remedy for temptation. First, we're going to look at the motivation, then the heart, and finally, the remedy for temptation. James begins by taking us back to the beginning of this letter. He begins by taking us back to the topic of trials. James 2 through 4 uh, or verse, chapter 1, 2 through 4, James talked about trials, and he told us that we need to think differently about them. We need to recognize that God uses trials that happen to us for our good. He uses them to grow us in godliness, to mature us in our faith, to sanctify us. And we saw that this was a motivation to remain steadfast, to remain focused on living the life of faith through these trials. God is working in us. Remain steadfast in faith so that it may have its full effect. Well, James here returns to the idea of being steadfast, but this time 
he takes the motivation for steadfastness a step further. This time, he points us to the future. He focuses our attention on, on, on a step further, on, on what's going to happen next. God is going to bring us through these trials, yes, and he's going to grow us through these trials now, yes, but James wants us to focus on what is waiting for us at the end. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Why remain steadfast, James says, because of what awaits you at the end. There's something awaiting the end of life's trials, at the end of life's difficulties, that is so much greater, that is so much better, that is so much more glorious than anything that the right now has to offer. Steadfastness is about remaining faithful and Christ-like in the trial. The right now offers some sort of instant gratification instead of steadfastness, the temptation is to give up. It is to stop fighting. The temptation is to become angry, to become bitter. The temptation is to stop resisting sin and to give in to it. But James says what awaits the child of God who remains steadfast, James calls the crown of life. It is the glory of eternal life. It is life forevermore in the very presence of Almighty God. It is life, not death. That is awaiting the child of God. That's awaiting those who love him. That's what God has promised to those who trust in him. Here then is the goal, says James. Here is the future that awaits every child of God. Here is the eternity that awaits those who believe. This is the motivation to continue on steadfastly. This eternal life, this crown of life is the reason that we can keep pushing forward. There is something better. The shininess of sin does not compare to the far greater shininess of eternal life. Obedience and faithfulness and steadfastness, when it's so hard to be obedient, faithful, and steadfast, are worth it because there is an eternity waiting for those who love Christ. We can look at it from the opposite perspective to understand what James is saying here. If there is no eternity, if there is no life beyond the grave, if there is no glorious fellowship with God coming up ahead, then it really doesn't matter how we live right now. If there's no eternity, there's no reason to be steadfast in trials because there's no greater glory to come. There's no reason to resist the temptation that we feel to abandon the good fights. One of our opening songs this morning talked about shining up the armor that we have for battle. But if there is no glorious future, if there is no eternity, then you might as well take the armor off. There's there's no point fighting, no point enduring. But here's the contrast. Here's what James is saying. Because there is an eternity ahead, the battle is worth it. Because there is an eternity ahead, resisting sin is worth it. Obedience to God in the middle of our struggles when it's so very hard is worth it. Because there is a glorious crown awaiting us. We can think of this in terms of budgeting. We, we save now, we resist spending now on the little things, so that later on we can afford the bigger, the more important things This is what we teach our children. This is the basics of responsible money management. 
Don't spend your money on all kinds of candy and toys now so that later you can afford that bike. Don't spend all your money on takeout food and movies so that later on you can afford that first car. Don't spend all your money on that brand new top-of-the-line furniture so that you can afford the down payment on a house later. We, we Don't spend your money now. That's the principle at work here. Don't get distracted now with what is of lesser value so that in the future you can enjoy the, what, that which has more value, the more meaningful, the more important. Invest not in temporary satisfaction, but in eternal satisfaction. And that more meaningful, that more glorious, that far better future goal for the child of God, beloved, is the crown of life. This is the motivation for enduring, for pressing on in love-fueled obedience. There is a love-promised crown of life waiting. This is why he calls us to endure, to press on, to remain steadfast. Resist temptation because it's worth it, far more worth it than anything else can offer. Giving in to temptation may satisfy for a moment, but that's it. It is empty, it's meaningless, it's temporary. James is asking us to hear the the love-induced promise of our God. There's eternal life waiting for you. Remain steadfast. Point that James is making is that we are to live in light of eternity. We're to live not with just the immediate in view, not with the immediately immediately gratifying filling of our vision, but with we are to live with eternity in view. And he warns us here not to look down, but to look forward. When we look down, we run into problems. It's it's dangerous to look down. When I was younger, I made the mistake of looking down while I was riding my bike something going on in the chain and the gears, and I was looking down at them as I was trying to figure out what was going on. And so I didn't see the parked car that was sitting in front of me. And sure enough, I hit the parked car, and it hurts. And that's what's happening when we don't look forward. We get distracted by other things. We lose track of the big picture We lose sight of the destination. We lose sight of the motivation to keep enduring. And we get distracted by lesser things and run into problems. And that's what James is warning us of here. Look up to the glory of Christ and not down to the distractions of sin. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the goal. The coming crown of life is the motivation for fighting temptation. This is where James begins by focusing on our motivation. But to further help us fight against these temptations, James takes us a next step uh, into a, a close look of how temptation works. And this is an interesting approach because it's a, a helpful approach. What James is doing is explaining how temptation works so that when we find ourselves being tempted, we can identify, we can, we can spot it. It's kind of, kind of like learning how to do something difficult. Think about one of those... Annoying sports like golf. A love-hate relationship with golf because in golf you can, you can do everything right. You can feel completely right, but the ball goes off into the rhubarb. And then oftentimes, or sometimes, the, the, the club follows it out of frustration. But to hit a golf ball just right requires many small adjustments to be just the right place. 
This is why people hire golf coaches. They watch our swing. They tell us how to make those small adjustments. They walk us through each step of the process again and again. They tell us what to look for. And slowly, as you learn more and more, eventually you can tell why you've made a bad shot. Eventually, by the time you, don't, you haven't even seen where the ball goes, and you know already that it's a bad shot. And this is what James is doing for us here. Pay attention to how temptation works in your life. Be alert so that you can identify it in your own heart before it turns into action. He begins by making clear the source of temptation. In particular, he begins by telling us what the source is not. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, it's here, beloved, that we we need to dig into how we respond to our failings in our trials. We can respond in faith or we can respond in faithlessness. We can give in to the temptation to lash out in anger. We can give in to the temptation to to hide under the covers. We can give in to the the temptation to seek revenge. And when we are faced with the reality of our poor responses to our suffering, we can then shift that blame away from ourselves. And often, God is the one who receives that blame. Now, perhaps we're thinking, I've never blamed God for my responses. I've never accused him of making my sin. I have never said I was tempted by God. And maybe we haven't consciously thought those things, maybe not directly, because it sounds pretty harsh. But perhaps we've done it subtly. And this happens when we blame our circumstances for sin. It happens when we entertain thoughts that justify our poor, unchristlike behavior, all because of what's happening to us, rather than the sinfulness of our own hearts. We think things like, if only I wasn't in this situation, if only I wasn't struggling with this debt, if only I wasn't having these marriage struggles, if only I wasn't fighting with my parents, If only things were different, then I wouldn't have acted this way. It's not my fault. It's the situation. It's in that moment that we are shifting the blame away from ourselves and onto the one who has sent us those hard situations. It is then that we are blaming God for our sin. Beloved, do you see how how subtle it is? We blame the circumstances for our own sin, which puts the blame not on us, but the one who brought us into those circumstances. We blame our Father in heaven. And James says, put those thoughts out of your minds. Let no one say this. And he says this because it's impossible for God to tempt us. He says, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It is the character of God that makes it impossible for God to tempt. He himself cannot be tempted to evil, and to tempt someone is to sin is evil. We need to make a very careful distinction here. There's a significant difference between allowing hardships into our lives and trying to make us sin. What God does is send our hardships into our lives. But the reason that he does this is so that we will grow, so that we will overcome that hardship, so that we will endure and become complete and mature in the faith. He allows difficult things into our lives for our good. 
And that's very, very different than temptation. Temptation is for the purpose of making you fall, of making you fail, of making you sin. Temptation has a very different and a very sinister purpose. But beloved, God never wants you to sin. He always wants you to overcome the trials of your life. He wants your good. He wants you to grow. That's why it's impossible for God to be the source of temptation. And James goes on to identify exactly where the source of temptation is. And beloved, it is an incredibly humbling answer because it's us. Temptation comes not from outside of us, but it comes from inside of us. James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desire. That's the source of temptation right there. It's not from what happens outside of us or to us, but it is what is already existing in our own hearts. We sin because we want to. We sin because our hearts desire sin. We are lured away by our own desires. Sin is not a circumstance problem. It's a heart problem. Lust and greed and revenge and patience and every other thing we are tempted with are not circumstance problems. Beloved, they are heart problems. Beloved, it is so important for us to think about this, to understand this. We live in a world that tells us that what is inside of us is what is true and good. We live in a world that says that to suppress your true self is wrong, even harmful for you. Instead of denying your sin, instead of putting it to death, we are told to let it out, to live it authentically. It is then that you will be most happy and healthy. It is then that you will be living as you, you should be living. It is then that you will be really living This is at the heart of our our rampant sexual freedom culture. Don't suppress your feelings. Don't suppress what's inside. Give into it. It can't be wrong if it's how you truly feel. Beloved, this is a lie. This is a horrible and a dangerous lie. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, shows us what is true about our hearts. He says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts are deceitful. They are untrustworthy. But our society says to follow your heart. There's that song called Listen to Your Heart. It says, listen to your heart when he's calling for you. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. But that is the opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. It's all a big lie. This is why James pleads with us in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Notice the intimacy, the the passion of James here. Beloved, my loved ones, do not be deceived, dear children of God. Sin does not start from outside of us. It starts from inside of us. It does not lead to happiness. Notice instead where it leads, where giving in to our sinful desires actually leads. James tells us in verse 15, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It leads to death. That is the end of giving in to temptation. That is where giving in to our desires leads. Sinful thoughts lead to sinful actions, and it all leads not to life but to death. 
not satisfaction, but to emptiness. That's where following the sinful desires of your heart will lead. And so James says, do not be deceived, my beloved. We live in a world of lies, and we are tempted to believe those lies because it's exactly what our hearts want to hear. We want to hear that I'm not at fault. We like to hear that I'm not to blame. We, want, we like to transfer that blames to my hardships or to the people around me, even to God, as long as I don't have to bear the blame. We want to hear that my desires are good, that we should let them guide my heart, that, that we shouldn't let God's word cramp our style or tell me what I should think is right or wrong. We want to hear those things. But they are lies. Do not be deceived, beloved. What this means is that we need to confront our sin, not avoid it. We need to acknowledge our sin, not dodge it. We need to confess it, to repent of it, lay it at the foot of the cross. Our cry is not, it's not me, or or, I'm not to blame. No, before the throne of grace, beloved, our cry should be, it was me. I am to blame. I am guilty. Please forgive me. Blame shifting leaves you wallowing in your sin, all for the sake of feeling better about yourself. What we most desperately need is not to feel better about ourselves, but to see clearly what is true about ourselves. It is then that we can embrace the blame, embrace the guilt, and then bring it to the foot of the cross. It is then that we can bring it to the one who died for our blame, who died for our guilt, who died for our shame. We can bring it to the one who has won for us an eternal crown of life. We must be willing to give up what makes us feel better about ourselves for that which is truly better for us. Beloved, that is hard, isn't it? To die to self is hard. To mortify, as the old Christians said, to, to put to death our sin is hard. To embrace our guilt rather than avoid it is hard. If it were the easy road, we wouldn't avoid it. If it was easy, James wouldn't be challenging us right now. That means, beloved, what we need is help. And that's where James finally turns. He turns to the God of help. He doesn't tempt us to sin. Rather, in his glorious grace, he gives us everything that we need to overcome sin. James says in verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and every perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. Everyone, every single one comes from our God. And notice that his gifts are good gifts. They're gifts for our good, for our growth, for our well-being. They're also perfect gifts. They're they're exactly what we need. He gives us the perfect gifts at the perfect time. This means that he knows. This means that he's, he's watching. He knows us intimately, and he knows our situation in detail. He knows exactly what we need and when we need it, and then he gives it to us in that exact moment. This includes the wisdom that we talked about a couple weeks ago, 
He gives the wisdom we need, the vision, the ability to live God's way in God's world. This includes the Spirit of God who who empowers us for life in this world, a life of Christ-likeness. This also means that he gives us what we need to endure, to, to remain steadfast in our trials. It means that we are given the grace that we need not to sin, but to resist sin, to resist temptation, to overcome it. We receive all of this because our Father, uh, He is our Father in Christ. We are those He has adopted into His family through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our confidence in times of difficulty, when the temptations of our hearts, the desires, rage within us. Beloved, there's also hope for the future here. Our Father is unchanging, He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. The Father of lights here because he is the one who created them. He created the sun. He created the moon. He created the stars of the sky. And these are, in one sense, constants in our lives. Every day the sun comes out, and most nights we see the moon and the stars. Their patterns are constant and predictable. But in another sense, they are constantly moving, or they at least seem like they're moving to us. The sun rises, but it also sets. And in between those two moments, there are shadows that creep across the landscape. The same with the stars. We see them by night, but by day they are hidden from us. There is movement and change in these lights. But our Father, the Father of lights, does not change. There is no shadow. There is no variation. He is constant. He is faithful. He is immovable in his love and faithfulness towards us. Further yet, he is the father of light rather than the father of darkness. He is most fundamentally good. This is what he is. He is good to his people. He is gracious to people. He is a good giver. This is who he is. This is his unchanging character. He he gives good gifts. Beloved, we know this because we have the ultimate example of this good God's perfect gifts. And that is salvation. That is life. This is what James tells us in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, of his own good desire, he brought us forth. This is the imagery of birth. He, He bore us to new life so that we are new creations. We are born again. And this he did, not because we deserve it, but because he desired to, of his own will, of his good and gracious desire. We who are blame dodgers and and guilt transferers and shame shifters, we are the ones he desires to bear, to transform, to give new hearts to. As he did by his word of truth, we looked at this last week, God uses his word and spirit to build his church. He uses his word of truth to enliven our dead hearts. He uses the gospel to restore to life. He makes his, uses his word to make us the first fruits of his creation. This means we are the first. The rest of creation is going to follow. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the rest of creation groans with eager longing for the redemption of his sons. It's because we are the privileged first. We are those who are dedicated to the Lord. We are those who are holy, who are set apart. Beloved, this is the ultimate gift he's given us, life. 
and this gift we receive in Christ from the Father of lights. This means, beloved, that this promise of James, that our giving God will never stop lavishing upon us gifts. He will never stop equipping us, never stop giving us with wisdom that we need. He will never stop giving to us his spirit that we need. This promise will never fail. Our God is endlessly good. And that's why we don't need to dodge blame. We don't need to transfer guilt. We don't need to shift our shame. The answer is not found in in giving into our blame transference syndrome. We need to turn to our good, good Father, our unchanging Father of grace, who gives us not only good gifts, but gives us perfect gifts, that we need to resist these. What we need, beloved, is the gospel. So let's take a step back then and view the landscape of what James is saying here. In every trial that we face, there is incredible potential. There is the potential to grow and mature in Jesus Christ. There is the path of faith, the path of Christ-like obedience. Or there is the incredible potential for sin, for giving in to the temptations of our hearts, the sinful desires that well up inside of us. This is the path of faithlessness. Beloved, the answer, the the help, the hope that we need to respond in faith is found in the good and glorious gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us then remain steadfast in our trials, not by blame shifting, but by laying hold of in faith the good gifts of our gracious Father. Amen.